All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode eight of Gilbo's Fight Show. Thank you so much for being here. It's a big week in the sport of mixed martial arts. It's a big week for the UFC, a big week for Bellator. We have big stories that broke this last weekend. We've got a bunch to get to. It's a big week for the show, for the GFS community, if that exists, this week. I've got, I'm going to have three episodes coming out this week. There is the one you are currently listening to right now, in which we are going to dive in, dive into the James Krause situation. Uh, obviously, we have the story that broke this past weekend. We'll get into that later. Uh, today, we're also going to jump into a Bellator 2 89 preview and we're going to recap a little bit of uh ufc orlando uh today's going to be kind of uh you know your standard gfs episode for this week because there is so much to dive into today in just these topics we are going to do a separate episode on a ufc 282 preview which is coming up on saturday the final pay-per-view of the year for the ufc and then we've got a third episode, which is an interview with the one and only Dalton Rasta. He is currently ranked fifth in Bellator's middleweight division. He looks to improve to 8-0 this weekend at Bellator 289. He takes on Anthony Adams. It was a great interview, a great conversation. Um, I look forward to you guys being able to check that out. And yeah, big, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, I'm putting out a lot of stuff this week. Hopefully you can get to it all. If you can't. I understand. That's okay. But that's how it is going to be. Three episodes. Right now, though, we've got to jump right into this James Krause saga, if you will. This was obvious. This was obviously the biggest news of the weekend, which is impressive. Well, I mean, not impressive, but it, it, it was the biggest news of the weekend, even though the UFC had a pretty big fight night card, a very good fight night card. We'll get to that a little bit later. In reality, this is this has to be one of... One of the biggest stories in the histories of this sport. I'm not going to go into the full timeline. If you would like a full timeline, Ariel Hawani broke down the entire situation really well on the MMA Hour on Monday, and they gave it's like a forty. There's a 45 minute video on YouTube. If you want the entire deep dive of the whole thing, uh, it's really good. They do a great job. They go through every single thing that happened, kind of day by day, essentially. Just the entire timeline of events um, leading to where we are now. But that being said, the Canadian province, Ontario, uh, came out with a press release last week that they are banning casinos and sportsbooks from, and sportsbooks from accepting all bets on any UFC fights due to concerns over betting integrity requirements. Essentially, uh, the uh, Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario um, was stating that the UFC doesn't abide by these standards or um, these standards or safeguards against odds manipulation, match fixing, and other sports betting integrity issues. And they lay out two of these standards that the AGCO it lays out these two standards that they say the UFC does not abide by that is necessary for the AGCO to allow bets on. That is a really big deal. Then, on Friday, the story really kind of breaks wide open. We get word via a notice that was sent to all active UFC fighters and managers, I believe. Hunter Campbell sent out 
this release that any fighter who chooses to remain training with James Krause, chooses to continue being coached by James Krause, will no longer be permitted to fight in UFC events. We also learned that the the fighter who was involved with the fight, um, where there was all of that suspect line movement, kind of where this whole thing originated, uh, Derek Manor was also released. And yeah, all, all indications would suggest that this situation is going to get worse before it, it's going to get better. Um, Ariel said on his show on Monday that... Uh, this store, this whole situation is on the radar of the FBI, which is understandable. Um, this kind of thing is taken really, really seriously, generally by not even. I mean, you know, it, you don't need to take my word for it. it it's pretty well documented. Even going back to a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago with Shoeless Joe Jackson and the uh, you know Chicago Black Sox, as they're now called. Um, where there was the alleged uh, fixing of a World Series game, or several games, I believe, so that the the Chicago White Sox would would lose the World Series, you know, payoffs, whatever. Uh, those guys were all permanently banned from Major League Baseball, uh, banned from being in the Hall of Fame. That was a hundred years ago. I have to assume sports betting has only uh, gotten more serious. And you know, fight fixing, game fixing, all of this, all of these things, you know, only become bigger deals as history continues. You'd think, you know, more eyes and just the way we're all more interconnected than ever makes all of this easily as big of a deal, if not a bigger deal. I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but this has obviously been one of the. This has been the biggest story of the last week, the last two weeks. It's only going to continue to be the biggest story. It's probably going to get bigger. But in terms of mixed martial arts, uh, the UFC, MMA in general, it is a really big deal. And I kind of want to lay out exactly what I feel that, that is um, in, com- in comparison to other sports. Because, you know, mixed martial arts hasn't had its shoeless Joe Jackson. They, it hasn't had its Pete Rose the way baseball has. It hasn't had its, its issues the same way the NFL has. Um, and I don't think the NFL has ever had a super big... Um, game fixing issue that I can think of offhand, but or at least not one that was ever proven. But and it's it's easy for us to dismiss a lot of these other issues, especially if you're in my age demographic, because we weren't even alive to see Pete Rose play. We weren't alive um, when we we weren't alive during the the Arizona the Arizona State point shaving scandal in in the nineties. So this is pretty unprecedented in terms of, well, definitely, not entirely, but it's very unprecedented in terms of MMA because there's just not a lot of precedent to be set yet. Not the same sample size of precedent that other sports have. And that kind of goes back to the fact that MMA has been in this constant battle for legitimacy over the last 30 years. And it, you know... In the last maybe four, five, six, eight years, it's just started to receive this kind of mainstream legitimacy that it's been searching for. That you know, uh, you know, the Dana White and the Fertitas and all of the people that were there that kind of took over the UFC back in the day. That w- that was originally their goal. They wanted to turn this into a major sport. They've mostly succeeded um 
against a lot of you know against I don't say all odds but against a lot of a lot of odds and now the question becomes what is this going to do what effect is this going to have long term short term how is this going to affect the future of mixed martial arts because you have to assume it will I think in probably a pretty big way and now you can kind of question what do you think actually happened here because if there's any level of fight fixing like if if they sent if if Derek Minner it seemed in all you know it seemed pretty clear Derek Minner knew he was going to lose that fight Derek Minner fully understood that he didn't have the ability to win that fight or at least his back was pretty against the wall and if there's any level of fight fixing going on here where he, where you know Minner had money yeah where if Minner himself profited at all over him losing this fight that's a problem uh, and then you know if James Krause had money on the other guy, they're both done. And if they if they can prove that, obviously, you know, Krause, Minner, they're never going to be involved in mixed martial arts ever again, in all likelihood. And if they can even prove that Krause released some inside information that impacted this crazy line movement leading up to this fight, he's also done. And I think this just leads into the issue, not lead... Le- this just opens up a can of worms that I don't think it, it, mixed martial mixed martial arts in general in the UFC was not ready for this to be opened up because for years and years and years it has been an established thing that guys go into fights hurt. It's been well documented. It's been stated explicitly in different interviews. Guys saying they go that you know talking about going into fights hurt before the Francis Ngannou Cyril Gan fight. It was pretty common knowledge. One of Francis's knees was all kinds of jacked up. Justin Gaethje uh, has had talked about going into a fight, hoping to get his nose broken so that the UFC, uh, so that he could go get the surgery on the UFC's on the on the UFC's insurance charge. Because if you've suffered an in-fight injury, an in-fight injury, the UFC's insurance covers it. If it if it's not an in-fight injury, then you're going to have to have your own health insurance. But the can of worms is going to open is pretty rough because. You have a lot of guys coming in, not a lot, but you have guys on a relatively regular basis, in all likelihood, coming into fights hurt, knowing their back's against the wall, knowing there's a lower than op- a lower than ideal chance for them to win this fight, but they need that paycheck. They need that $20,000, $12,000, whatever their show money is. They know they have to show up and get that paycheck. You can go back to just the TJ Dillashaw situation with his shoulder, Tito Dillashaw's show money was probably pretty good. And I mean, I know he he pushed back against the claim that he just needed a paycheck, but even, you know, you know, whatever. He did, he says he didn't need the paycheck. I would tend to agree. He seems like he's doing fine. But let's just say for the sake of the argument, TJ Dillashaw hadn't fought, he'd fought once in about 3 years. Let's say he hadn't he didn't have all these successful business ventures outside of MMA. He knows that he could get this title shot off of his name what he's done. Even with his banged up shoulder, he knows his show money's pretty good. He can walk in here. Um, he knows he won't. He knows he probably won't win the fight, but he can sell it. He's on a big pay per view. Um, he, you know, he's making probably decent six figure show money. Let's just get to the fight, get in the cage, make weight, collect his paycheck. That's not an irregular thing. Now the problem becomes. When people know about this, when these guys are able to get in the cage and fight hurt, 
very hurt in some cases. How do you avoid these betting situations? Now, Dillashaw, somehow, that, that information somehow just didn't seem to get out. Nobody, se- nobody really seemed to know. But there was an article written by Mark Raimondi of ESPN where a coach um, anonymous, anonymously, obviously, in the article, uh, talked about how he was in the locker room with one of his fighters. There was a different. There was another fighter warming up because they share locker rooms, and there was another fighter warming up. The coach noticed something about how the guy was moving, or just something in what he was doing in his warm up. It kind of tipped the coach off a little bit. He placed placed a small bet on the other fighter right there in the locker room. That's a pretty insane thing. Not that I blame him at all. That it just kind of makes sense, but. It's pretty insane you can do that. In almost any other sport, that's objectively not allowed. And until, until I think it happened right before UFC 280, when the UFC released the, the, a, a press release talking about how fighters aren't able, will not, won't be able to bet on other fights, anybody related to, you know, coaches, family members, all like, all in theory are not able allowed to bet on the UFC. Until that point. The only thing in the UFC bylaws just stated that UFC fighters could not bet on their own fights. That was the only thing that it had said to that point, which just leaves so much, so much open territory. I hope this all, I hope, I hope you're able to follow this because I feel like I'm kind of all over the place. This is going to bring big changes. And, and the question now, well, there's a lot of questions, obviously. But first of all, what's going to come of this investigation? What are what are what are they going to be able to prove in this investigation? And then what happens if they, what happens with what they can't prove? Because if they can prove fight fixing, or if they can prove fight fixing or insider information or whatever, then it's relatively pretty cut and dry. The fallout will be profound, um, and I think we generally know the framework of what that would look like. Kraus will essentially be exiled from the sport. Minner probably as well. Um, although that gets a little touchy. If it's just insider info from Kraus, it's hard to prove that Minner would... It's hard to prove that Minner was involved, probably. But also, the fact that Minner threw that kick twice in a row on his leg that was clearly compromised looks bad. But if they're able to prove any of this, obviously, yes, Kraus, gone. And then after that, there's probably going to be an investigation into every fight he ever coached every fight he ever fought in and possibly every fight he ever bet on and that's a lot of fights and that just the deeper you look into this the deeper or the deeper you look into this I feel like just the worse it's going to get for the UFC I think you're going to start seeing holes that had previously not been publicized not publicized but just kind of ignored I think it was kind of an ignorance is bliss situation and I think this is, is going to get much worse before it gets better for everybody involved. And then now what if they can't prove anything? Like what if they can't really prove anything happened? It all looks bad, but there's no evidence whatsoever. Obviously, I feel like that's kind of unlikely, but it, what, what if? What if there's not really any evidence to prove of any real wrongdoing? Do they let Kraus back in? Do they let him start coaching again? That's kind of hard for me to see. Uh, but can they slap him from a ban of like a ban from being in a corner from coaching from training? Can they ban his fighters? The banning his fighters thing obviously comes down to kind of the UFC. Um, obviously, commissions could just not give him a license to coach, um, and I'm guessing most commissions aren't exactly going to be huge fans of him moving forward, regardless of the outcome of this investigation. Um, 
So is he just blackballed either way? I mean, it seems possible. And then I think the other part of this kind of comes down to, well, the other part of this, and they mentioned this on Monday on the MMA Hour as well, this is not, even though the UFC is kind of the centerpiece of this whole situation, it just so happened that this happened in the UFC. This happened to occur on a UFC broadcast, a UFC fight night with a UFC fighter. This could have happened anywhere. This could still happen in any promotion. MMA is regulated pretty consistently across the board, pretty much the, the exact same way everywhere you go. There's slight rule differences in, you know, one has slight rule differences than the UFC, Bellator. You know, PFL has slight rule differences sometimes. But in terms of this conversation, they're all pretty much the same. All of the loopholes, all of the gaps in oversight, they're pretty much all the same. So how how does this impact the sport as a whole? Is it going to is it going to change how the sport's regulated entirely? It seems like it might because I feel like the 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 more you start pulling at these threads, the more you realize that all of these lines you have to acknowledge how blurred the lines can get and just are between UFC employees, UFC fighters, which is there's a difference there. Coaches, media, there's all there's all these intersecting points and there's relationships and friendships and you have you have people that you have people that in theory are members of every single one of these communities. Just take Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier, a, a former UFC fighter. He's retired now. But former UFC fighter champ, whatever you all know this. He also still trains at American Kickboxing Academy with Islam Makachev, Umar and Usman Nurmagomedov. Uh, you know, if we're talking UFC, Duran Wynn, uh, you go to Bellator, Kyle Crutchmer, um, Luke Rockhold, whatever. You can name, you can go through all these people that he's, that are still relatively active fighters in the UFC or Bellator or other places. He's training with them, maybe not on, on his regular basis now, but you go back three years ago when he was an active fighter and also a commentator and he was a commentator he was a training partner he was an active fighter he also had a had a radio show on ESPN makes him media he's all of these things DC has a relationship with everybody and this is a bad example not exactly a bad example it's not a it's not an example of a ton of consequence because obviously DC is about as stand up of a guy as you get He's not going to be doing anything crazy here, but it's just an example of how blurred these lines can get. There's no clear distinction between all these people. Just yesterday, you had Dana White on a podcast with Patty Pimblett. That's kind of weird. Not super, super weird, but I don't know. It just, there's so much intersection through all of the, through all of those groups, employees to fighters, to coaches, to media. It's pretty incredible that there hasn't been, there hasn't been the conflict of interest as big as this until now. James Krause had a betting podcast that was hosted on UFC Fight Pass. He was it wasn't that long ago he was on he was a regular member of John Anik's podcast where he would give out picks. He'd give out his fight picks and he'd handicap fights. 
It's not like this was all something that he was doing in secret, you know, under the cover of darkness, kind of hiding it from the UFC, from the brass. Everybody knew. The media knew. The UFC knew. It was all above board until it wasn't. That's why this is so weird and so crazy. This wouldn't happen in other sports. And I think partly, obviously, it's because the sport is so young. I think part of it, and I think it goes hand in hand with this, but it just, ignorance is bliss. They didn't have to worry about it because there wasn't an issue until there was. But now there is. And how far does the fallout go? Because now there's this question of legitimacy. The very thing the UFC and MMA has fought for, tooth and nail, for their entire existence. And I think as people start to see how blurred these lines get and all of the possibility of problems, I think... The way that the Ontario Alcohol and Gaming Commission put it is it gets to the core of the issue that the UFC and MMA in general lacks integrity safeguards to mitigate risk of match fixing, match fixing, insider information, all of that kind of thing. And I think as this as these threads start to get pulled, you're going to start noticing these potentially problematic situations. And I think there's going to be some big, big changes coming this situation probably is gonna it's gonna take months and months and perhaps you know years to solve but it's gonna get pretty weird i think and it's hard to it's kind of hard to even grasp how big of a how big of a problem it could end up being but i think it could be pretty big um obviously we're gonna stay up to date with this uh, i'm sure this is not the last time i'll be talking about it um again if you want a full kind of step-by-step -step, uh, layout timeline of the exact situation, go to uh, MMA Fighting YouTube channel and Ariel Hawani and the whole team at the MAR break down exactly kind of the timeline behind the whole thing. It's about a 45-minute video, but it's totally worth watching. I would suggest you go do that if you want the full layout. There's been a lot of really great journalism on this. You know, there's not honestly... There's not a ton of opportunity in MMA for there to be really good, solid journalism, but we've seen a lot of it in terms of this situation. Aaron Bronstetter's done a great job. Mark Raimundi has done a fantastic job. Um, Ariel, obviously, uh, has done has done a good job on this. Just that one video was very, very good. Luke Thomas, great job. Just in terms of all... I mean, there's more, obviously. Those four especially, I think, have really done a good job in shedding light and framing this situation into a way that is uh, digestible and understandable for people and um, properly showing how big of a deal it is and kind of putting it into the right kind of context. But we will now move on. I hope that all made sense. All right. The second biggest deal of the weekend was a pretty awesome UFC Orlando card. It started out a bit slow. I couldn't watch the whole thing at the time because I was at a wrestling tournament, which went pretty well. Uh, you won't get into that today. There's too much to talk about this week. But UFC Orlando was very solid. Really good card. Obviously, in the main event, we get Wonder Boy versus Kevin Holland in what was an awesome, awesome fight. Probably a top six, seven fight. Yeah, top six or seven fight of the year. And that's in a year where there was some incredible fights. There's probably there's years where that's a finalist for fight of the year. Uh, Wonder Boy, the ageless wonder, if you will, he looked awesome. 
He, I mean, he looked so impressive. He proves once again why you simply should not be standing up with him. There's not a man alive who is completely safe standing up in a fight with, with Stephen Thompson. I said it before that it, it, historically it's a very risky proposition just to to stand, be in a stand-up fight with, with Wonder Boy. And he proved it again. And Kevin Holland did a good job. Those first, I mean, the first round Kevin Holland had him in some real trouble. Second round was really competitive. Um, and then Wonder Boy really just came on super strong, just cranked up the the gas in the third and fourth rounds and, uh, you know, gets, gets the finish after 20 minutes of fighting. Kevin Holland's hand looked gnarly, all kinds of beat up. Well, not beat up, just broken. And then, you know, Wonder Boy also broke his left hand. Obviously, that's been bothering him for a while. You know, he seems to break his hands every fight. Um, but awesome performance from Wonder Boy. Not much else to say. I mean, come on. Great fight. Wonder Boy still got it. Love to see him make another run of the title. I know he says that. Um, the problem is uh, welterweight is pretty chock full of really good wrestlers, um, which nobody wants to see Wonder Boy taken down and beaten up like that. We want to see him in striking fights, and you could see it in this last fight. That's why we want to see Wonder Boy in striking fights, because they're awesome, and uh, everybody likes to see Wonder Boy win. Come on. I think Wonder Boy versus Mazadol is a fantastic idea for both guys. Wonder Boy versus Michelle Pera is also fine, but I, th- I think Wonder Boy versus Mazadol makes all the sense in the world. If you're not going to do Wonder, Bo- if you're not going to do Mazadol versus Connor, then do Wonder Boy Mazadol. Let's see. Uh, Sergey Pavlovich absolutely steamrolled Ty Tuivasa. I think it is fair to say that Ty might have come back a little quickly, but I also think it's fair to say that Sergey Pavlovich is one of the best heavyweights in the world. Scary, scary, scary dude. I mean, yeah, it wasn't really a fight, in all honesty. Ty did his best to, you know, swing and bang his way out of that one, but Pavlovich did a great... I mean, every time Ty was winding up for a big shot, Pavlovich just stuck one in his face right before he could, you know, because Ty's shots all come... They come wide and they're, they're you know boulders come at your face. But if you catch him before he can get to you, it makes your life a lot easier. And Pavlovich did a really good job of that. Not a lot to say about that fight either. Pavlovich is a scary dude. He should get a big big fight next. And I mean that was a big. He's actually had two big big fights in a row. I mean, I don't know. Pavlovich said he wanted some time off. Honestly, I think that works beautifully. Uh, give me a Tom Aspinall fight in the return. Tommy Aspinall, Sergey Pavlovich. I think it makes all the sense in the world. Give it to me International Fight Week or something. You know, something around there. Seems to make sense. Pavlovich wants some time off. He can take like, he can take a couple months off, relax, get back in the gym. Uh, you know, Tommy Aspinall, that that puts him like a year out from that um, leg injury. Or that, that you know, the, the knee injury that he suffered last July. So, yeah, maybe... Middle of the next year, Pavlovich versus to uh, Pav- Pavlovich versus Aspinall. Book it. I was right about Eric Anders. Put it on the board, and I was wrong about Brian Barberina. You can put that one on the board too. RDA styled on Brian Barberina. That wasn't even competitive. The line in that fight was right. I'll take that L. But I was right about Eric Anders. He beat up. Kyle Dawkins, I my I had a feeling 
that that was going to happen. Like I didn't think, obviously Eric Anders has been up and down and generally speaking, especially lately, kind of down, but I don't know, man. That's kind of exactly how I thought I saw it. I thought Eric Anders was just going to be better than him, and he was. Um, RDA, sorry, I'm bouncing back and forth. Uh, RDA calling out Conor McGregor I thought was fantastic. Great call out. RDA deserves that fight. I hope he gets it. I'm not confident he will, mainly because it's a risky fight for Conor because RDA is really good. RDA is about as well-rounded as it comes, and I don't think Conor wants to get taken down. Um, But RDA deserves that fight. That fight was supposed to happen back in the day. I think that'd be an awesome fight for Connor's return, especially if Connor still thinks he wants to make a run at the title at 170. That's just me assuming Connor can't get down to 55. You beat RDA, even though he's not necessarily ranked at 170 right now, but Connor beats RDA. You're in the conversation of the rank. Like, you, you know, that's a pretty legit win, whether it's at 170 or 155. If Brian Barberina had beaten... RDA at 170, I bet he gets ranked. Or I bet he gets a ranked opponent next, at the very least. Connor beats RDA. You know, if, if they do Connor versus RDA in uh, the return fight, and Connor beats RDA, people are going to, like, you'll have, you'll have Dana White talking about a title shot, probably. As insane as that is, I bet that's what happens. So I could see it. I think that's a great fight. I don't know if they'll do it. But I honestly think it kind of works out, because until now, I've really been banging the Connor versus... Masvidal drum because I think that fight just makes all of the sense in the world but now Wonder Boy opens up a door where you can do Masvidal Wonder Boy which I also think makes all the sense for both for both guys you could all and then you can do Connor versus RDA I think that's all I think that that works perfectly I know it bumps out Michael Chandler but honestly um that one was always the least appealing to me anyways because Mike, you're a 55-pounder. You've always been a 55-pounder. I just don't know what the point is if you're going up to 170 just to chase Conor McGregor. I get it's a huge fight. It'd be an awesome fight, but it just seems to me to make the least amount of sense. But yeah, love the great fight by RDA, great fight by Eric by Eric Anders. Eric Anders probably kept his UFC career alive, honestly, with that win, um, possibly at least. But a lot of other great performances on the card. You always love to see Angela Hill killing it. The amount of good karma she's built up from all of those split decision losses that she should have won is finally coming to fruition. Great win by her. I would love to see her finally make a run at the title. Um, I don't know if she, you know, I don't know if she ultimately wins it or even gets to a title fight. I would just love to see her finally get a chance to like try to prove herself near the top of the division. I think she's earned that. Um, especially if she comes out and gets another big win next, I think she's absolutely, you know, I think she's absolutely earned a right to, to get a big fight near the top of that strawweight division. She's been around forever. She's fought everybody. She's never in an, in a not competitive fight. She's always in the fight. Um, and she's, you know, two big wins back to back for her. Super, super happy about that. Shout out Michael Johnson. Shuts down Mark J. Casey. Really, really, really impressive. Clay Guida got the job done, beat Scott Holtzman in Holtzman's retirement fight. JSP uh, did the damn thing. And then Roman Delize had that gnarly calf slicer to ground and pound. Never seen that before. Like, it, I had a teammate in college who would kind of do a similar thing on top to, um, if you know wrestling, uh, imagine, like, you have... You're leg riding and you you hit a cast over and a cross face to back points. 
I had a teammate in college that would kind of do a thing where he would lift the, he'd bend the other guy's leg at the knee, and then he would. This is really really hard to explain, without a visual. He would like fold the guy's leg in half, and then he'd throw the leg in and kind of clamp the other guy's leg shut. If this makes any sense at all, I, it probably doesn't. Imagine what Delizze was doing, except then he casted that leg over. And that just to, to score back points, obviously, because in wrestling you're trying to score points, not get, get a TKO. Incredible maneuver. There was nowhere for Jack Hermanson to go. You're either going to sit there and be in, you're gonna, either going to sit there and take it, or you're going to tear your knee apart. You can't really move one way or the other without being in some serious pain or some serious trouble. Super solid by Roman Delize. That's not a guy I'd want to be fighting if I'm in the top 10 in middleweight. But uh, Delize versus Marvin Vittori, I think, makes a lot of sense. Or the winner of Cannoneer versus Strickland. I think he's earned that. Or you could do uh, Imovov versus uh, Kelvin Gastelum, too. The winner of that fight would be just fine as well. Lots of options for Delize. Really good run he's on. There's my quick little recap for UFC Orlando. Awesome card. We got to move it forward to this weekend. One of the biggest cards of the weekend. Well, I guess probably, you know, number two objectively. Um, great card from Bell for Bellator 289. Uh, really, really excited for the main event. As I've, I've talked about it before, you've got Rafian Stotts takes on Danny Sabatello in the semifinals of the B Bellator Bantamweight Grand Prix. Also for the interim Bellator Bantamweight title. But Bellator also has, I mean, it's a pretty solid card top to bottom. Um, second fight of the night, you got Kyle Crutchmer riding a three-fight win streak. I believe he's ranked ninth right now in Bellator's welterweight division. He was a college wrestler at Oklahoma State. He is a beast. He is really, really good. Um, only lost once in his career, I believe. Nine and one is in his career. He takes on Jaleel Willis. It's a big fight for Crutchmer. Looking to move forward in the uh, Bellator welterweight division. Pat Downey will return after his dominant MMA debut uh, only a few months ago at Bellator 284. He is another name in that Bellator middleweight division that only gets more interesting, honestly, day by day. Uh, Lucas Brennan, I believe, is still... Nope, he is not. Okay. Never mind. Lucas Brennan, 0 for 2 on fights uh, the last two Bellator events. Tough break for him. Hopefully he gets in there soon. The previously mentioned Dalton Rasta, who I had the opportunity to interview, he fights on the main card of Bellator 289. He looks to improve to 8-0. He is ranked 5th in Bellator, Bellator's middleweight division. Super, super exciting middleweight prospect and uh, middleweight contender now. Only 7 fights into his career. Already making a lot of noise. Coming off a big, big knockout win over Romero Cotton. Had some trouble getting booked uh, earlier this year after that cotton fight. But now he gets one more fight in before the end of the year and looks to set up a big 2023 run for him. Magomed Magomedov will meet Patchy Mix in uh, the other semifinal of Bellator's Bantamweight Grand Prix. Uh, honestly, the fight that is probably going under the radar more than any other on this card. Magomed Magomedov, very, very good. Probably the dark horse of that whole tournament, but he has a win over Piotr Jan. A really tough dude. He has Magomed in his name twice. Um, not a dude I'd want to want to have to match up against. And then Patchy Mix is a beast as well. 
Edgy Mix has been around uh, in in the Bell in Bellator forever. Not forever, but for a while. Sixteen and one. Only loss was to Juan Archuleta, which was for the Bellator uh, bantamweight championship back in twenty twenty. Uh, since then, on a three fight win streak, as a win as two straight wins over James Gallagher and Kyoji Horiguchi, which are two really really solid wins, and now is in the semifinals. They are set to face the winner of Stotts versus Sabatello, which is going to be a huge fight. Uh, the final, I mean, either way. Uh, Liz Carmouche will rematch against Juliana Velazquez for the Bellator women's flyweight title. This one also flying under the radar. It's a, it's a championship fight. It's a big fight, obviously. Um, they'll get a lot of eyes on this fight simply because of the Stotts versus Sabatello fight. Obviously, Liz Carmouche... He says, OG as OG gets. She's been in the game forever. Obviously, I believe, former UFC title challenger. I mean, has a lot of great wins. A a former two-time UFC title challenger. Uh, on a four-fight win streak. She finished Velasquez in the fourth round of their last fight. Um, I believe this might have been a fight she was losing up until... Um, she ended up catching a catching a not catching, but she ended up getting Velasquez into a crucifix and then just finishing her with elbows. Um, but she has a lot of good wins. Beat Caitlin Jukagian, beat Lauren Murphy, beat Jessica Andrade, beat Valentina Shevchenko all the way back in 2010. Who am I? 2010. Strike Force fighter back in the day. I mean, she is as as OG as OG gets. And Juliana Velasquez. Super tough fighter in her own right. Her only loss is to Liz Carmouche in their last fight. And should be an interesting one. But then, of course, the biggest fight of the night, a fight I've been looking forward to for months, Rafael Stotts takes on Danny Sabatello for the interim Bantamweight title in the semifinals of the Bantamweight Grand Prix. It's one of the reasons I love the Grand Prix. You get fights like this with all the stakes in the world. Oh, the lead-up to this fight's just been so much fun. I got a chance to be in the room for their face-off at Bellator 288. I also am convinced Bellator either paid them extra or threatened them with large fines not to touch each other because despite the fact that they were in the same room with each other, they did not even flinch in each other's direction in terms of, like, threatening to hit each other or push each other, whatever. They were very well-behaved, relatively speaking. Um, <laughs> but, man, the lead-up to this fight's been awesome. Sabatello's really really uh, cranked it up this week, uh, basically. You know, he, he did uh, a humanizing fighters with um, Alex Behunin I, is on Twitter. If you don't follow him, you should. He does humanizing fighters with people, with, with fighters pretty much every single week. But he did one with Danny Sabatello, and for every single answer... Danny Sabatello said, Stotts is a bitch. <laughs> oh. And uh, bitch seems to be uh, a favorite word for each of these guys. So I will be very interested to see just how this fight goes. Who's, who's I mean, everybody knows Danny Sabatello's style. He's going to come in there. He's got solid striking. He's got very good striking defense. But he wants to go in there, take you down, smother you break you on the ground, elbows, ground and pound, all of that fun stuff. Stotts is a pretty dynamic striker, also a very good wrestler in his own right. Sabatello, a couple-time D1 All-American for Purdue. Stotts, I believe, a couple-time NCAA 
champion in Division Two. Both incredibly impressive feats. Neither of those are easy. I mean, both are incredibly, incredibly difficult. Also, trained pretty close together. I am still shocked this fight wasn't at uh, wasn't in Chicago. Although I know obviously they had the Corey Anderson fight there, which makes sense because obviously Corey hails from the Chicago area as well. But so does Stotts and Sabat, or so does Sabatello, and uh, and Stotts trained in Milwaukee. I don't, I, I don't know if he if that's still where he does the main part of his training camp, but he used to train at Rufus Sport. I think he still does. So that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But either way, this is still a huge fight. Super excited for this. Stotts riding a big win streak. He just had that head kick win over Juan Archuleta in the last round. He has a win over Magomed Magomedov in his fight before that. I mean, his last win is to Marab Dwalishwili. His last loss, I think, is what I meant to say. Well, each of these guys only has one loss on their record. Both of them have not lost in quite a while. Man, I just, I'm really excited to see how this goes. If, if Can Sabatello take him down is kind of the question. On the feet, I have a hard time seeing Sabatello beating Stotts. We just haven't seen a lot of Sabatello on his feet. He That just doesn't seem to be where he really wants to be. I have a feeling Stotts probably would be better on the feet. Oh, I don't know. I just don't know how it's going to go. I'm super, super excited. Stas is obviously super well-rounded. I have a hard time believing that Danny Sabatello isn't pretty well-rounded, just considering the fact that he trains at American Top Team. Really great training partners. I'm sure his striking... I'm sure he's developed pretty solid striking in the several years he's been training there. So it's just hard to know what's going to happen here. Super, super excited for this fight. And that's going to do it for us for this episode. I know that wasn't a super in-depth... Uh, preview on Bellator 289. They're just the James Krause stuff. There is too much to get to in terms of that fight or that situation. I think I I, I hope I did. Uh, I hope I still did the Bellator card service. I'll be watching it for sure. Um, hope maybe I hope maybe I'll make some more content based around it. Uh, later on this week, we've got the interview with Dalton Rasta coming out coming out later this week. Probably either later today or tomorrow. Are super super happy about how that went. Hopefully, I get to interview him more in the future. I was supposed to have another interview with another Bellator fighter, but I was deathly sick yesterday. I had one of the gnarliest one-day stomach bugs I've ever had in my life. I felt so bad. Um, but hopefully, hopefully that fighter gets a win, and then I can interview him uh, next week post-fight. So, thank you so much for listening. Check out the other stuff coming out this week. We're gonna have a UFC 282 preview coming out. Before Saturday, probably Thursday, Friday, it, it should come out. The Dalton Rasta interview. Bellator, number five ranked middleweight. Fights at Bellator 289. Could be the next title challenger. Not the next title challenger, but could be a Bellator middleweight title challenger in uh, 2023. Big week. A lot of fights to watch. Super excited. Thank you so much for listening. I will, hopefully, see you next time. Peace. Peace.